0: Our next speaker is an old friend also, Roy Gullick, is the Michelle Belfer Professor of Medicine at Cornell. And he's spoken here many times again. And it's a pleasure to welcome you back,
1: Thanks, John. Can you take two New Yorkers back to back? Forget about it. Actually, only (laughs) less than 1% of New Yorkers ever say, golly gee willikers. (laughs) Only you, Dimitri. I love coming to Chicago because it reminds me of New York so much, except the people are nice and it's clean. But aside from that, I just feel really at home here. Uh, So we're going to talk about ART new guidelines and new drugs and I have no disclosures. My objectives are to be familiar with current recommended and alternative ART regimens according to guidelines. I uh, describe some research data that may challenge these guidelines and I'm going to talk about three invest or actually more than three but you only have to remember three uh, investigational agents in the pipeline. So let's start with the question which of the regimens that you see listed here is not a recommended regimen according to current DHHS guidelines. So scan down and pick out the one that doesn't belong. I don't know. So dramatic. <laughs> okay good. So 62% of you recognize that real Rilpivirine is no longer on the list of recommended regimens either with TDF FTC or with TAF FTC. And that's because of data we've cited this several times today that it is less effective in people with CD4s below 200 or viral load levels above 100,000. So that one fact bumped it to the alternative list. So here are the current DHHS guidelines updated January 28th of this year and these are the recommended regimens and the outline for the regimens is something we've had now for several decades, two nukes plus a third drug. As you know, there's one protease inhibitor-based regimen, TDF, FTC, and boosted darunavir, And all of the other regimens are integrase inhibitor-based. And so that includes co-formulated abacavir-3TC-dolutegravir, TDF-FTC-dolutegravir, TAF-FTC-Lvitegravir-COBE, all co-formulated into one pill, The same only with the older formulation of TDF and TDF, FTC, and Ral-Tegravir. So these are the current recommended regimens, one, two, three, four, five, six regimens. We also have alternative initial regimens, again with the same design, two nukes plus a third drug. As you know, non-nucleoside regimens were moved from the latest edition of the guideline or from the previous edition to the current edition they were moved from recommended to alternative. So tenofovir, FTC, and efavirenz for many years on the recommended list now switched to alternative and this was really for toxicity reasons. Also, as just mentioned, TDF, FTC, and rilpivirine. PI-based regimens include boosted atazanavir based regimens and again, that used to be a recommended regimen moved to alternative because of data showing toxicity concerns for boosted atazanavir, darunavir with abacavir or cobicistat is considered alternative because of fewer data available and TDF FTC and darunavir with COBE for the same reason, just less data with the newer booster cobicistat. So this is where we are today, that's recommended and alternative. What I think is interesting is what happens next So there are some head-to-head comparative studies of our recommended regimens. And some of these you've seen, these these are three examples. That doesn't work. Um, All from recent studies that were published. So the first cited here is ACTG 5257. It was a huge treatment naive study. Over 1,800 treatment naive patients were randomized equally to one of three options. All received two nukes. One group got boosted out of Xanavir one group boosted darunavir, and the third group raltegravir, which was given twice a day in the study. What you see over on the right-hand column is what is the suppression rate to less than 50 at 96 weeks or two years? And you can see that raltegravir at 94% outperformed either boosted PI regimen, was statistically significantly better than either of the boosted PIs. So there's a difference there Um, Also, darunavir outperformed atazanavir, And then you look at the single and flamingo studies, both of them published and then updated with 96-week data just in the last year. And uh, these were head-to-head comparative studies using a dolutegravir-based regimen versus a challenger. In single, the uh, standard of care regimen was a efavirenz-based, and in flamingo, it was boosted darunavir based and you see for both of these studies, uh, 96-week data, that the dolutegravir regimen outperformed the challenger, either a efavirenz or boosted darunavir. So these kinds of data and other studies are beginning to say, hmm, not all of the regimens are the same, even though they're all recommended. So what's the guidelines gonna do with data like these? Well, we don't know, we'll have to wait and see. Now everything I showed you was three drug regimens. Should we be thinking back to two drug regimens so the old timers like me, when you say that the hairs on the back of their necks start to stick up, because we've been through this before, we've compared three and two drug regimens and three was always better. But these days we have newer drugs that are more potent, more convenient, and better tolerated, and so people are beginning to go back to the idea, could we get away with two drugs, and this is just for your interest. It's a small pilot study called PADL. I have no idea why they called it that. It was treatment naive individuals, and this was done in Buenos Aires, Argentina, with viral load levels up to 100,000, so all treatment naive. You could see it's small, only 20 people, but they took an investigational regimen, two drugs of dolutegravir and 3TC. That's an appealing two-drug regimen Again, for potency, convenience, and tolerability, and because 3TC is generic, they could be co-formulated in the future. So what they did uh, was to present their preliminary data at the EACS, that's the European meeting, and it turns out all 20 of these people suppressed their viral load levels to less than 50 by week eight, and all 20 were durable to week 24. Now is that enough to say, whoa, I'm gonna go start everybody on this at home? No, don't do that. But it's interesting data. So that actually, uh, and they updated what was the over, uh, overall viral load decline at the CROI meeting just earlier this year. And you can see on Paddle, it was about 2.8 log reduction. And that was compared to three drug regimens in spring one and single, uh, about the same viral load reduction. So this looks like quite a potent two drug regimen But again, don't do anything based on 20 patients. So the uh, AIDS Clinical Trials Group took a look at that and said, wow, let's uh, let's make it bigger. And so we have a pilot study that's enrolling now with 120 people, and we raised the viral load cutoff to 500,000 copies. So uh, Biba Berzins is here from Northwestern. Biba, raise your hand. She's all the way over there. And she's the study coordinator locally in town who's doing this study. Um, Turns out it's open. Byba, you're looking for referrals so anybody who has someone who might be interested in doing this uh, please talk to Biba during the break. Did I mention that it's open? It's open and it's uh, how many do we have as of this morning? 70, 76 people randomized so there will be more data. Behind the scenes there are phase three studies being talked about so if this works this could completely change what we do so stay tuned. OK, which new class of drugs is in advanced clinical development? Is it an uncoding inhibitor, an RNA-H inhibitor, a maturation inhibitor, a CD8 attachment inhibitor, or a CXCR4 antagonist? Okay, I got 94 responses. And 62%, wasn't that exactly the same on the last? So it's probably the same 62%. Pick the right choice. Maturation inhibitor of the ones listed here is the farthest along. Uncoding inhibitor, nothing's reached clinical um, trials yet. RNase H inhibitor has been talked about for years, but again, no clinical candidates. CXCR4 antagonists, there was one that reached clinical development and then was abandoned. Um, interestingly it uh, was helpful in getting stem cells to increase in the bone marrow so it's being developed as an oncology drug and uh, CD8 attachment inhibitor I just made up there's no such thing so 10 percent of you fell for that one okay so we're moving to the new drugs part of this talk and the good news is that there are a lot of investigational agents in the pipeline so we have new nukes new non-nukes, even some new protease inhibitors, new entry inhibitors, including ones with different mechanisms of action, new integrase inhibitors, and the unfortunately named class, abbreviated class, MIs, or maturation inhibitors. There's several of those as well. Why do we need new compounds? Um, I saw a guy two weeks ago um, who had a history of really being treated with everything, was on a multi-drug regimen that he was failing. We did a Geno-Pheno, and he was resistant to nukes, all nukes, all non-nukes, all protease inhibitors, all integrase inhibitors, had dual mixed virus, and actually had a T20 history, so we knew he was resistant to that too. So he's resistant to essentially everything we have. How many of you, raise your hand, have a patient like that? Really, nobody? No one in the room, wow. When I asked this question in New York, it was you know a handful of people. And everywhere I ask, I get a handful. So one of the reasons why we need new drugs is simply for people who have experienced failure on everything we have to offer today. What I'm gonna do is not try to cover everything here, but pick out a handful of compounds that offer something over what we have today either potency particularly against resistant viruses or convenience or tolerability and I'm gonna go class by class. So nucleosides, boy we've had these a long time, we're really comfortable with the nukes we have and I disqualified TAF from my presentation because it's approved so it's not new anymore. So what do we need? What could possibly be better than what we have And one thing might be something that's more convenient. Now, how do you get more convenient than one pill once a day? Well, perhaps something less frequent. So the candidate compound is super early in development. It has gone into uh, first-in-man trials, but that's it. It's at phase one right now. It's called EFDA. It's an adenosine um, uh, analog, and it's a non-obligate chain terminator. So it's a new class just when you thought it was over, you have to learn a new class called NRTTIs, Nucleoside Reverse Transcriptase Translocation Inhibitor. So it, someone said, ooh. (laughs) So it inhibits the translocation of the whole enzyme, the reverse transcriptase enzyme, along the template of the RNA, and that's how this drug works. It's potent in the test tube, as you can see there, and it uh, has potent activity against HIV-1, HIV-2 and multi-drug resistant strains, including multiple nucleoside resistant strains. Well, that sounds good, but why are we really interested in this compound? And that is, it's long-acting. So here is data from the Croy presentation. This is first in man. It's a small study, um, a handful of people, and they gave a single dose at time zero here, and then followed them for viral load level. And if if you can't see the scale, we're actually looking out to 10 days later. And so 10 days after taking one oral dose of this drug, you have a 1.8 log drop in viral load levels. So this is highly potent and potentially has the potential to be dosed as infrequently as once a week. Now would that be a benefit over what we have today? Well of course we couldn't use one drug that did that but this may be the beginning of what we see next in our field doing better than one pill once a day people talked about two three times a week I think most of us think that's confusing for patients but once a week maybe that would do the trick so this is the beginning of people thinking about that idea in fact they used um, a preparation in rats where they implanted a device and it slowly eluded this compound and it turns out again the scale here is six months. So just implanting that into the rat, I'm doing this like it was the rat's arm, but I don't know, it's probably not, probably bigger than that. Um, But it eluded the drug over a period of months, and even a year later, you could still detect the drug in rats. So again, just uh, something to think about. Could, Could we have implantable devices, which actually eluded antiretrovirals over time? It's an interesting idea. Okay. So that's early in development. What about a non-nucleoside? What do we need in this class? We have a number of them right now. Perhaps something with less toxicity, better tolerability, active against non-nucleoside resistant viral strains, that would be useful, or fewer drug-drug interactions. And the candidate compound of all the compounds I'm gonna talk about today, it's the farthest along in development is Draverine. So this is an investigational NNRTI, it's uh, Uh, in the test tube, potent at low milligram dose. Why is that important? Because you could co-formulate easily with other meds. It lends itself to that. It's metabolized by CYP3A4, but importantly, it's neither an inhibitor nor an inducer, so you would expect that it's going to have fewer drug-drug interactions than the NNRTIs we have today. It is potent in vitro against viral strains with non-nuke resistance, including the ones you see here. K103N, that's efavirenz resistance. Y181C, that's nevirapine. And even down towards the bottom, E138K, that's rolpivirine or etravirine resistance. So in the test tube, it's active against those strains or even combinations of those strains. Here's the phase one data, small study, only 18 people treatment naïve, they received daily dosing, um, either of placebo shown in green or two doses of Duraverine, uh, once daily shown in red and purple, and you can see by the end of seven days of dosing, 1.5 log reduction, so potent drug based on this monotherapy study. That uh, led to the phase two study, which is bigger, over 200 treatment naïve participants were enrolled in here. They received two nucleosides and then either Duraverine in the light green or Efavirins in the gray. And we're looking at 48 week suppression rates and you can see by the end, we're looking at the proportion less than 50. It's uh, just under 80% of all patients who enrolled in the study were suppressed by the end of 48 weeks. So certainly comparable virologic activity between Duraverine and efavirenz over 48 weeks. And this was updated by Jose Gattel at the CROI meeting. What about tolerability? Well, that was looked at carefully. One measure of this are what the investigators considered to be drug-related adverse events, and uh, I've circled it for you there. You see it's about 30% in the duraverine group and nearly twice that many, 56% in the efavirenz group. So fewer drug-related side effects, almost half as many with Deraverine, seeming to imply that it's better tolerated than efavirenz. What about an integrase inhibitor? We've got three of them. We've been talking about them all day. What could possibly be better than the integrase inhibitors we have today? Um, Well, again, better convenience. Are there longer-acting ones? And uh, the candidate compound is cabotegravir, so abbreviated cab as in uh, I need to call a cab or I'd like a cab with the steak please or something like that. Anyway, it's an integrase similar to dolutegravir so the structures are very similar. It has a similar resistance pattern. It is available in an oral formulation and that showed potent antiretroviral activity which has been published but that's not what we're interested in with this compound. What we're interested in is the new nanotechnology Formulation of cabotegravir, so you can give this compound parenterally, sub-q or more likely intramuscular injections are how cabotegravir is going to be given. And this compound has an exceedingly long half-life, so note it there. It's 21 to 50 days. So here's the. <laughs> thanks for whistling. So the the uh, here's the pharmacokinetic curve at time zero. People received a number of different doses of cabotegravir given either intramuscularly or subcutaneously, and then they simply followed levels over time. Now when you usually look at PK curves, pharmacokinetic, you're looking at hours, perhaps, or days. Here we're looking at weeks. Okay, this is a year of data. You can see that at some of the doses, after one injection, you could still detect cabotegravir a year later. So this is truly a long-acting compound. Now if you get a little more conservative and you draw a line at the uh, inhibitory concentration 90% IC uh, which is protein adjusted you can see many of the arms still have good levels months after giving a single injection but what turns out that they are targeting either Q8 or Q12 week dosing for cabotegravir and you can see some of the doses you're well above the target level after single doses. So this is a compound that's probably gonna be developed as an every other month or every eight week parenteral injection. Would that be a benefit to some people? Yeah, I think you'd agree. There are certain groups that would um, benefit from this kind of option. What about side effects? Uh, So far what's seen to date are injection site reactions, not the ones you remember from T20. These are better tolerated and milder. So here is the latest data with uh, injectable cabotegravir. It's a study called Latte2. Sounds pretty good right now. And uh, this was presented at the CROI meeting. Um, It was a study of treatment naive individuals. You can see over 300 of them At time zero, they went on the oral form of this drug. Now, why did they do that? Makes good sense, right? You're on the oral form just to make sure that there's no side effects. Because once you inject it, it's there. You can't get rid of it after injection. So they gave them a Bacavir 3TC and an oral formulation of Cabotegravir for 20 weeks. And then they took the people who were suppressed and nearly everyone was suppressed and then randomized them to one of three options. So the first group got injections of cabotegravir with injections of a similar formulation of rilpivirine, both intramuscularly, and they got those once a month. Group two also got the same two drugs, slightly higher doses, and they only got them every eight weeks, so every other month. And group three stayed on the oral formulation for comparison. So this study is really asking the question, can you use two injectable drugs to maintain virologic suppression in HIV? And here's the answer. So these are the week 32 results, that was the primary endpoint. In the gray, you see how people did on the, the oral regimen, abacavir 3-TC-CABO, and you see almost everybody got to undetectable there to less than 50, and in the fainter lines to the right are the three arms of the study, but they're all overlapping and over 95% of all people on this study maintained virologic suppression. So the every eight week double IM injections maintained HIV suppression for periods of months. Will that lead us to change our behavior? Well, it's a phase two study, so it certainly supports moving forward with this as a possible alternative for the future. Here's the, uh, you can see the actual numbers over on the left, same colors as before, but all three groups were over 90%. The second column there are uh, virologic failures, you can see very few, and uh, it did reach non-inferiority for both the every eight weeks and the every four weeks. What about the um, side effects here? Almost exclusively injection site reactions they were common Um, you can see over eighty percent had grade one those are the mild ones and uh, nearly almost fifteen to twenty percent had grade two so that's moderate but importantly they decreased over time and only one percent of people actually left the study because of injection site reactions so they were relatively well tolerated and then this question of every eight weeks, every 12 weeks. So when it was being rolled out, initially cabotegravir was talked about as an every 12 week drug. It's being tried not only in treatment, but also prevention. It would make an ideal prep drug, Dimitri, potentially if you could offer injections periodically. And so they actually took data, this is from an HIV negative study of 127 men. And what you see in the graph there in orange is what they thought the levels of cabotegravir would be, and the horizontal line again shows the target level. And you can see orange looks okay, but what they actually found on this study is shown in green. So the peaks were higher, but more worrisome, the troughs were lower. And so they felt that Q12 dosing was really not gonna achieve the kinds of concentrations they wanted to, and they are going to Q8 week dosing. Now will people really go for getting injected every other month? either for prevention or treatment? I don't know, time will tell. CD4 attachment inhibitors. So this is a new mechanism of action. The uh, patient I mentioned before that we saw at our place was screening for a study of CD4 attachment inhibitors. Again, a drug with a new mechanism of action should offer hope to people with multi-drug resistant virus because it works a different way. Now we've had HIV entry inhibitors for some time and these stem from understanding the mechanism, so uh, the HIV entry, of course, is the first step in the life cycle. Over on the left is HIV up on top and the CD4 cell down below, and you see HIV recognizing the CD4 receptor shown in green there through its glycoprotein 120, GP120, that interaction is the first interaction in the HIV life cycle. Once that binding occurs, Um, It then binds to a second receptor called the co-receptor, which we know as CCR5 or CXCR4. And then that allows the third step, which is the fusion of the viral membrane and the host cell membrane. So we're good at interfering with co-receptor binding. We have our CCR5 inhibitor approved, Meraviroc, which targets that interaction with the CCR5 receptor. We have a fusion inhibitor, of course, and Fuvirtide or T20. What we haven't had is something to interfere with the first interaction, but now we have a candidate compound. It's a small molecule called BMS663068. So it turns out BMS sold this drug a couple months ago, but they have not changed the name, so it's still called that for now. And I'll call it 068. So what do we know? So this is the first uh, first in man study. It turns out 068 is the prodrug of another compound, 626529, that's the active compound against HIV, and inhibits CD4 binding by binding itself to GP120, so it does target the virus rather than the CD4 receptor. You can see here that this is the phase one study, multiple doses of this compound given for a short eight days as monotherapy, and at the highest doses, you can see out to days 10 and 11, over a 1.5 log drop in virus, showing that inhibiting this step of the life cycle does translate to virologic effect. Now, one interesting thing is that 12% of people in this early study, in this phase one study, showed no effect at all of this new compound. And when they went back and looked, they had polymorphisms in GP120 that rendered complete resistance to this new compound. So this may be another drug, if it becomes approved, that we would have to screen for susceptibility to. Uh, Polymorphisms alone can Mean that it won't work in a small percentage of people. This led its way to the phase two study. Uh, this was published and then updated um, at the CROI meeting by Edwin De Jesus. It was a study of over 250 people. They were screened for susceptibility to the new compound, so they had to have a 50% inhibitory concentration less than 100 nanometers for the active, or uh, molar, for the uh, active compound. They called this a treatment experience study, but look how they define that. At least one week on at least one ART drug, okay? Not what we typically say is a treatment experience study. Um, they got a backbone that was also unusual. Everybody got raltegravir and TDF, so not your typical background. Then they randomized to one of four doses of the attachment inhibitor, and the control arm was atazanavir. They looked at the primary endpoint, and then as you see down there, selected one of the higher doses of the attachment inhibitor to move forward. And what did they see? 61% suppressed in the attachment inhibitor group, 53% in the atazanavir group. They did have a lot of dropout in this study. Um, In terms of tolerability, you can see that uh, the number of subjects with an event 8.5 percent with the attachment inhibitor versus 37 percent with boosted adazanavir regimen as you might expect most of that was bilirubin. Uh, So this is leading this compound forward. Um, It was given breakthrough status by the FDA in July of last year that accelerates its development and the study I mentioned was for heavily treatment experienced patients um, and that is almost completely enrolled. So we should see that data for this compound soon. It is being developed as something for treatment experienced people. Lastly, MI, maturation inhibitor, also a novel mechanism of action, also an issue with baseline polymorphisms that confer resistance, so we wanna try to avoid those. How do these compounds work? We're at the last step of the life cycle. The virus buds off, but its polyproteins are in the form of long precursors, and the GAG polyprotein is shown there, multiple components. We require a specific cutting activity for full maturation and infectiousness of the virus and that's done by an enzyme we know well, the HIV protease. Well, we're good at inhibiting that. We know how to inhibit that and stop the step. But the other way you could do it is to bind to two parts of the polyprotein and that's how the maturation inhibitors work. So they're small molecules that bind to the big polyprotein and prevent that cutting activity of the protease enzyme. The compound that's in development is 955176. You may remember an earlier compound in this class called Baviramat, the IMAT was maturation inhibitor. But it turns out, uh, this is tested for you here against compounds with multiple polymorphisms. 50% of people had polymorphisms which reduced the activity of Baviramat. So because of that, they abandoned that drug. But the new one, 176, shown on the right side, retains activity against the most common polymorphism, so that one has gone into clinical trials. What about people with protease inhibitor resistance? Because these are acting on the same step, might that mess up the activity of the maturation inhibitor? And so we heard at Croy that they took isolates from people who had failed prior protease inhibitors, and then they took highly PI-resistant viruses, they tested this in the test tube, the maturation inhibitor retained full activity. So PI resistance did not affect the maturation inhibitor. And that led its way to the phase one study. You can see here again multiple doses, um, a very short 10 days of dosing and at the highest doses 1.5 log decrease. Again, showing a new mechanism of action has significant virologic activity. uh, This compound is one step earlier in development. There are plans for phase two B that are going on right now. Here's the phase 2a where they combine it with adazanavir over 28 days. And again, you can see about a two log drop in combination with the protease inhibitor. So this is looking promising and will move forward in clinical development. So I will stop there and uh, thanks again for having me to Chicago. long one yes <laughs>
0: two paragraphs it's got
1: footnotes that's really <laughs> nice
0: <laughs> well the questioner is interested in patients who failed integrase inhibitors um, or non-nukes based on resistance where the problem was poor adherence so are they likely to be candidates for directly administered car- carbo
1: Okay, let's see if I got this right. So the question was uh, making an observation that it's easy to get resistant to either the non-NUC class or the integrase inhibitor class with the possible exception of dolutegravir through poor or intermittent adherence. And would that be a unique group to think about for the injectable or the implantable drugs? And I think we'd all agree that's exactly who we're thinking of. Someone with adherence problems that might be good. The flip side of that is if you miss a dose, if you miss an injection of cabotegravir, that's a big problem if you're on treatment because that level is going to slowly go down and if your virus comes back up you're going to quickly develop resistance to it. So we're going to have to come to terms with that over
0: time. Do you but think that, yeah. Since we have a large population of diabetics who inject themselves, do you do you foresee an injectable agent being in- injected by patients at home, because patients may not show up every eight weeks as you've just pointed out.
1: Yeah, so John brings up a good point and this is being thought about. So IM injections are tough to give yourself, although not impossible apparently. Um, But uh, many of these are gonna be investigated for sub-Q formulations or or again implantable devices. And so it may be that some of these could be self-administered or for instance methadone maintenance programs would serve a nice purpose for this if people could get their injectables there right Thank you. Tim the, who failed on the uh, cabotegravir it looked like maybe one person did they fail with they disappeared or did they have a virus with viremia and end resistance uh, on that particular, you're talking in the uh, latte too? Exactly, they yeah. ha- I don't think they've presented those results yet. Okay. Yeah, so I don't know the answer. Yeah, because I guess with that other question of, you know, are they gonna fail and get resistance or are they gonna? That would be the worry with the long acting ones that people would fail and then develop resistance. We would not want
0: to do that to people. Does a CD4 attachment inhibitor target monomeric or trimeric DP 120 Um,
1: It binds to a site on the GP120 that is involved with the CD4, it's the CD4 attachment site. Uh, The specific question is it monomeric or trimeric? I don't know, it is a small molecule so I'm guessing it binds to each part of it. But I don't know the answer to that. So one muffin says to another, No, just kidding. Thank you.